0: Welcome to the Get Off Your Affirmation podcast. I'm Leona Evans, and I'm here today with my son and co-host, Matthew J. Evans.
1: Hi. I really appreciate everybody who's listening. I think this is one of the most important podcasts that we've ever done, so it really means a lot that we have the opportunity to talk about this.
0: This is an incredible forum, being able to do a podcast, and I think I'm just beginning to realize what kind of freedom we have And so today is June 3rd, 2020, and our country is demanding justice for the brutal murder of Black American George Floyd at the hands of four police officers last week in Minneapolis. Racism is rampant in our country. We're at a crossroads right now, and we need to decide to put an end to this madness once and for all. This issue of racism
1: in America has been going on for so long. African-American people have been oppressed for so many generations that now is the time they are saying, we're all saying, enough is enough. We're demanding justice for these violent acts that happen needlessly. We are demanding equality so that American citizens don't have to live in fear of going outside it's, it's insane that after so many years of people demanding justice, it's gone unheard.
0: Well, in terms of justice, as we're recording this episode, we're finding out that the charges against the police officers have been upgraded, one to second-degree murder and the others for aiding and abetting. And this is, as I understand it, an unprecedented step in the right direction.
1: Yeah, it seems pretty rare that an officer is actually charged uh, with one of these killings. So I'm hoping that as the process unfolds that justice is done because that is an even rarer occurrence.
0: Yes, that is definitely our prayer. And we have to keep our voices out there. We have to keep our voices heard because once we start to think that Everything is going to be okay. Once we become complacent, then we lose the momentum and we forget what the real purpose is, and that is to put an end to systemic racism. Now, over the past few days, I've been reading articles that have helped me understand that there is a level of sensitivity that those of us who are white need to bring to mind when we're trying to work with the idea of ending racism. And one of them, which is really, really important, is that we can't, as white people, we can't be black. And sometimes we try. We try to empathize so deeply because we feel so passionately that we want to take on the fact that I can't breathe means as much to a white person as it does to a black person. And according to what I've been reading, this is not necessarily where we can serve the best. We can empathize and we can stand behind black people who are protesting, but we can't take their place. And this is a really, really important point that we need to be sensitive about. We need to listen to what black people are asking us to do. Now one of the things I've been hearing for a long time that white people can do is to work hard, harder than ever, to elect government officials who are committed to civil rights and racial equality, to work to elect black officials to really work to become informed on what the actual political issues and bills are so that we can be clear about what decisions we're making and what the consequences of voting for them or against them are. This is a really, really important thing to do. And I don't know that that many white Americans are that interested in finding out the intricacies of the political system. Many people that I know are just so worn out by the corruption in politics that we'd rather stay away from it. And for me, this is not the time to live in denial. This is not the time to protect our sensibilities. This is the time for white America to stand up and understand as much as we can about the policies that we're being asked to vote on, not only meet and embrace the system as it is now, while working hard to be really informed about how to make the changes that we need to make. We'll talk more about this later on.
1: The other thing that I hear so much that, that we as white Americans need to learn more about is the history. To understand the present, we need to understand the past. The past of racism that goes back to before the foundation of this country. Really taking a deep look at not just the stuff that we're commonly taught in school or we hear about once a year in February during Black History Month, but a lot of the really significant but unknown practices like, uh, for instance, redlining where banks wouldn't give loans to African-Americans trying to move into certain neighborhoods, police practices like stop-and-frisks and illegal chokeholds that are leading to the deaths of so many people. There's so many things that that – we don't hear about on the everyday news in, or reading the newspaper that we need to look into to really understand, to build empathy.
0: And along with building empathy, that information helps us be more informed in terms of what areas of criminal justice need to be reformed, what areas of education.
1: Things like voting rights, voter suppression, gerrymandering minority districts uh, so that they are underrepresented in Congress or in, at the state level.
0: These are just a few of the ways that white people can be of immeasurable support with our acquired knowledge, understanding, and our votes
1: please go online and look for resources that talk about race, racism in America, the history. One article that I found that had a lot of great resources was called Here's What Black Booksellers and Publishers Say You Should Read by Suyin Haynes. It was in uh, Time Magazine. It's on their website. And it's got a large collection of book titles that I think for many of us, it would be very important to read.
0: Yes, absolutely. The more information – white people have about the black experience, the better off we are in so many ways. One of the things I wanted you to talk about, Matthew, was the concept of dog whistling, which can come up when we hear political candidates talk about what they stand for.
1: Yeah, dog whistle politics is political messaging that is coded language that means one thing to the general population while having another meaning to a more specific targeted audience. For example, politicians who refer to cities that have large black populations or are represented by black politicians as dirty cities, crime infested, rat infested cities, when that kind of negative language is used so vociferously against these cities, there is an implication of racism there that needs to be investigated.
0: Something else that's important to become aware of are microaggressions. Now, let me define racial microaggression. These are brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative slights and insults toward people of color. Now, perpetrators of microaggressions are often unaware that they engage in such communications when they interact with racial or ethnic minorities, I want to share one example of a microaggression that I engaged in when I was talking to a Black friend of ours, and Matthew, you were there, and you were the one that called my attention to it. Um, he talked about having to make a speech, and I told him he was going to do a great job. He said he didn't feel totally prepared, and I said, but you're so articulate, and I know you're going to do a great job. And we, he thanked me. We said goodbye, and we moved on. Matthew, what did you say to me?
1: Well, I mentioned that I was concerned that he could have been offended by that because the term "you're so articulate" has a connotation of being "you're so articulate" for a black person. So I was worried that he would take it in that context, even though I knew that that's not at all what you meant.
0: Oh, no, I did not mean that at all. What I was trying to do was encourage him, not because he was a black man, but because he does have a beautiful voice and he is extremely effective with his word usage. The moment you told me that I had inadvertently committed a microaggression, I went back to him, and I said, I'm so sorry if you were offended by what I said. Matthew pointed out that I might have committed a microaggression, and he said, well, I know you, and I took it in the spirit that you intended it. But what happened to me was I became aware. I became conscious that when you say to a person of color, you are so articulate, that could easily be implying that most Black people aren't. And that was the last thing on my mind. Nevertheless, it did come out of my lips. So here's the thing. For white Americans, let's be very, very careful of what we say and very, very careful of what the reaction might be. Another microaggression without words happens when a white woman will clutch their purse or check their wallet if a black person approaches or passes, or a white store owner who will follow a customer of color around the store, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. A white person waits to ride the next elevator when a person of color is on it. These are really painful reminders that the white person believes that the black person is going to steal or that they are dangerous. It's tough. It it really is tough. I mean, for people of color, this happens every day and I strongly encourage those of us who are white to take full responsibility for being as careful as we can and to ask questions of our black friends and find out if we're doing something that we don't mean to do, because every word and every action counts if we are going to truly eliminate racism.
1: Yeah, it definitely takes all of us, each one of us as Americans of any race to take an inventory and really be aware of where our own personal biases may be, because we all have some bias somewhere for something And so when we become aware of it, we can do something about it and put a stop to it.
0: Okay, let's talk about getting involved in politics. Now, most people I know find this to be quite an abhorrent idea. They don't like politics, they think it's dirty and corrupt, and they don't want to be involved in it. But let me ask you this, how do we expect to ever put an end to systemic racism unless we have the support of our elected officials? It is incumbent upon us to work for those individuals who stand strongly for human rights. To be honest with you, I really don't know very many white people who are excited about the idea of getting into politics. It's really a tough field to enter, especially when we feel like babes in the woods, And although we know what we're standing for, we don't exactly know how to navigate from where we are to where we want to be. And also, the contentiousness of the atmosphere of political discussions puts us at a disadvantage. I know many spiritual progressives, many people in New Thought. I know many New Thought ministers who don't have the experience or the desire to deal with that kind of rough, political, argumentative atmosphere. But supposing We had a set of tools that would enable us to enter the world of politics from a perspective of love and wisdom, where we could share our ideas in clear and rational ways, learn to agree to disagree, learn the art of debate, and really, really become the change we wish to see in the world, not just complain about the evils of politics but to actively seek ways to bring light into the experience. I'm talking about the six steps of nonviolent social change, as written by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Now, I want to take a moment to remind you that Dr. King was an enlightened soul who was an incredible speaker and leader of the civil rights movement. He would not have given us ideas that could not be carried out. He had a dream and he believed in what he said. He was not only a civil rights activist, but he was a minister and he was devoted to his faith. He studied all the works of Mahatma Gandhi and began to understand that the only real way to experience freedom. And civil rights was to use a politics of love. And so this was the dream that he talked about, and this was the way that he talked about achieving it. These ideas are so. Powerful and so positive. And ever since I have been implementing these principles, I have found myself to be in a much better position to communicate my position with more understanding, more compassion, and yes, more love. So let me just briefly go through the six steps of nonviolent social change so that you can see what part of Dr. King's dream was really all about. Now, the first step, he says, is information gathering. Dr. King believed in the power of education. He said, without thorough and accurate research, most of what we believe about political issues will be based on information from potentially biased sources. It's our responsibility to find unbiased sources and do our best to be prepared, informed, and enlightened while still being open to learning and asking questions. I think it's quite common for us to engage in political discussions with people who seem to just know everything about their ideas. And when they ask about ours, we're not able to respond with that much practice or expertise. And Dr. King was very aware of that, and he wanted to put us all on an equal footing. We need to gather information before we go out into the political arena and become very aware of what it is that we believe in and how to express it. Step two is education. Our goal is to educate our opponents about who we are and what we stand for while making efforts to clear up misperceptions and assumptions. Learning effective methods of articulating our own points of view without fear of being criticized or discounted is a necessary part of our preparation. We also want to give our opponents the opportunity to connect with our humanity and authenticity by presenting our views as clearly and compassionately as possible. In the last few years that I've been politically involved, I've seen how
1: important it is to to be educated on the issues that I care about so that I can share them with others. We live in an era with so much disinformation that being educated on what we believe in is, is more critical
0: than ever. And it can lead to much greater understanding between opponents. Step three is personal commitment. Dr. King wanted us to make sure that we continued each day to affirm our faith in the philosophy and methods of nonviolence, to eliminate hidden motives, and prepare ourselves to accept suffering, if necessary, in our work for justice. And so our purpose is to be grounded in love and, with dignity and compassion, continue to pursue our goals. Of course, he talked about accepting suffering as a part of the process, and so it's unlikely that any change of this magnitude is going to come easily or quickly. And so Dr. King urged us to engage in daily self-examination and self-care, including a regular practice of prayer, meditation, uh, journaling, discussion, any other forms of stress reduction that gives us the opportunity to relax and remember who we are and why we chose this endeavor We know that the political environment can be volatile and insensitive, and our ability to rise above the temptations of verbal assaults depends on continual self-nurturing and a constant renewal of our spiritual purpose to be role models for personal and planetary change. Step four is Discussion and Negotiation. It was most important to Dr. King that we focus on issues, not personalities. We don't insult, demean, or express sarcasm to those who oppose us. It's the injustice we seek to correct, not the people. Dr. King was very clear that we need to focus on issues, not personalities. He asked us to not insult, demean, or express sarcasm to those who oppose us. He reminded us that it's the injustices we seek to correct, not the individuals. He talked a great deal about the dangers of adopting an attitude of derision or disrespect for our opponents. He told us that we would become consumed with anger and all potential negotiations would deteriorate into power struggles. I believe I can remember a time when people could agree to disagree, or have civil debates. As a matter of fact, I took several debating courses in school and loved the idea of batting an idea back and forth. Unfortunately, we don't seem to see much of that at all, if any. These arguments have become so personal and so deeply uh, embedded in power struggles that you almost don't know what the discussion is about.
1: That's true. It becomes about personalities. It becomes about the the characteristics of the individual debaters. And every single logical fallacy that you learn in an introduction to philosophy class is on full display in these debates. There's straw mans and red herrings and, and anything that you can imagine just to try to distract from a real substantive conversation.
0: That is so true. The level of discourse today is just vicious and violent. Um, It is definitely attacking people, and that's what Dr. King wanted to avoid. He wanted discussions to be about beliefs, about ideas, about facts, about what was real and what wasn't real, about how to see the other person not as a personal enemy, but as an opponent, someone in opposition or in contradiction to our ideas. And he wanted us to use psychology and philosophy and wisdom and temperance to be able to work through these differences and find some commonality. That was his goal. And that really is what needs to be our goal. And I believe we can be role models for that if we become able to separate our own personal feelings, if we are able to deal more effectively with our anger, and fears, and if we are steadfast in our mission to keep to the subject and not be distracted by the personality. I believe that the Gandhi King methods of nonviolent communication stress beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are all worthy. Of respect. And just because our ideas diametrically oppose one another on these levels of communication does not mean that we should not attempt to extend a hand of compassion and try to find other areas where we do agree. Step five is direct action. These are actions taken when the opponent is unwilling to enter into or remain in discussion and negotiation. Now, we need to protest injustices. We need to form groups, march, attend political forums, um, write letters, discuss and implement innovative nonviolent strategies. We need to transform our anger into the energy that motivates us to take action for positive change. Focus on manifesting the vision. Don't give up. Continue to express love and reason in spite of the reactions from others.
1: Yeah, nonviolence doesn't just mean non-action. It's really important to stay engaged. The less time we spend hating people who hate us, the more we can spend strategizing
0: on what we need to do. That is very, very true. Finally, number six in Dr. King's Six Steps to Nonviolent Social Change is Reconciliation. Dr. King states, Nonviolence does not seek to defeat the opponent. Nonviolence is directed against evil systems, oppressive policies, unjust acts, but not against persons. And so we understand that conflict is inevitable. It's the way we handle it that provides a framework for healing and reconciliation. It is important that we find common ground with our political opponents whenever possible as we continue to cultivate a consciousness of acceptance and compassion in all our interactions. Our goal is not to smite the enemy. It is to recognize, understand, and deal with our opponent in rational ways, and all of this is done in a foundation of love. Because if we really believe in the equality and oneness of all people, we need to understand that that means respect for all people, not necessarily agreement with their ideas. But just because we disagree doesn't mean we need to be mortal enemies. Once again, I'd like to respectfully challenge each of us to get off our affirmation and make a difference in the world, help end racism in our country, and remember that Black lives matter.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the Get Off Your Affirmation podcast. If you have any resources that would be educational, please share them with us on our Facebook page at the Get Off Your Affirmation podcast, and please share this episode. It is really important. This
0: is valuable information that a lot of people need to hear. We have a lot of work to do, but we'll do it together. Have a great week.